Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Quiet Storm Sleeper and the Bust. This is episode number 188. I am your host, Nicholas Minix, and joining me as usual is Eno Saris. Eno, how are you today? Uh, damn kids got me sick again. <laughs> uh, as I advised, you know, just before we began the program, uh, my advice to people with children, and I can say this because I don't have any, is just to toss them from a mountaintop, so... I think that's really kind of the best way to deal with stuff like that and and avoid such mishaps in the future. <laughs> Real brief, briefly, I will mention uh, this is this will be my last podcast for uh, quite some time. I'll be taking kind of an indefinite leave of absence uh, from the Fangraphs and Fantasy Baseball community, uh, which makes me quite sad, um, and I've appreciated very much uh, the, this opportunity. I'll say a few comments at the end as well, but... Uh, because without further ado, I would like to get into the fancy baseball stuff that everyone is here to, to really to hear. Uh, and to say that this is not uh, a performance thing. Uh, Nick Minix is not being fired. And, uh, <laughs> I've enjoyed <clears throat> every minute of our near award-winning uh, podcast uh, talking to you. Um, it's been great having you on at Rotographs and. Uh, I, uh, I hope everything works out, and we'll and maybe we'll see you again. We'll see. We'll see how it works out. But uh, uh, thanks, thanks for all that you've done. I appreciate that very much, and uh, I hope you don't make me cry again because uh, I did that last night after I finished my blog. <laughs> oh. uh, but and I appreciate well, and I, I guess without I'll just kind of get into then a couple of things I did want to say, and I I, I appreciate uh, all those things you say about me, and uh, really uh, I'm quite a bit disappointed in, in what I was able only to give uh, fangrass and rotographs uh, because I know that I'm capable of a good bit more. And I would like to apologize to listeners uh, who dealt with, uh, you know, we've had the occasional, and, and a lot of the, a lot of this has been incredible constructive criticism and that's, that's the type I always appreciate. So uh, it's, it's most welcome. And I think that that's something that will continue to be welcome in the podcast, you know, has always been, a big fan of it because he wants always everything to get better. Uh, and I think that's, that's what is kind of a symbol of uh, what makes Fangrass and Rotographs so great. And, uh, I will say that writing for, well, to me, Rotographs is basically, it's the coolest place to get as well as to give, uh, fantasy advice, uh, on the internet. So, uh, I think anybody, <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, again, just quick apologies, uh, you know, for the mouse clicks, the keyboard clacks, the throat clearances, the filler sounds, uh, sound inconsistencies, production issues. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not start listing all our flaws here. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, we, this is, you know, the, the podcast is capable of much better, and I was capable of making it much better. Um, and uh, kind of sad that I didn't... Um, Hey, we and, did pretty good, man. We we almost won an award. Yeah, and no doubt that this this podcast will be in great hands uh, uh, going forward, and that also uh, it will win an award uh, sooner or later. And there will be a lot more awards in Rotographs' future. I, I, I'm pretty confident to say that. 
So uh, I, I think it's only going in, in, to be in, uh, in better places. So uh, without further ado, and, it, and it's been a pleasure to serve everyone, and uh, I ho only hope that uh, you know, maybe one day we'll, we'll get to do that again. Without further ado, um, let's get to some of the exciting news that's uh, crossed our news desks. And we'll start with Glenn Perkins, uh, who believes he has re fully recovered from the forearm strain and nerve irritation from 2014. Now, I'm curious, uh, because a lot, you know, every pitcher at this point, kind of of the offseason or sometime uh, here, this, this is the type of injury that, on the one hand, it's great to hear news like this. Obviously, <laughs> you would, it's better than hearing, you know, I'm not quite sure that this is in, in still in the, is in the rearview mirror for me yet. <laughs> Right. But on the other hand, this is the type of injury that makes me more nervous than usual because it's dealing with, I mean, these are potential precursors for, for things like Tommy John surgery uh, or having to get elbow chips uh, taken out, something carved off the, uh, off the end of the, the joint there. How do you treat pitchers like this coming in? I mean, pitchers are a unique animal, and in general, like Jason Collette is, I'm staying away from that guy. Uh, because he dealt with something, and this year it only could get worse. And, and of, of course, that doesn't always happen. So I'm not, I don't take that blanket approach generally. Um, yeah. It's hard to, I mean, like, a lot of the DL studies that, that showed that, like, you know, previous time on the disabled list uh, predicts future time on the disabled list. Um, you know, in this case, he didn't really even go on the disabled list, but it was September. And, you know, the rosters are expanded. A lot of times they don't even bother putting people on the disabled list. And if you if you are a projection system and you just look at Glenn Perkins' the last four years, it's 60, 70, 62, 61. So he's been, you know, he's been great ever since he, he moved to the pen. And, you know, maybe he's more suited to be healthy in the pen given that he was a starter for so long. Um, and he built up that strength. And, and uh, you know, maybe it's not a big deal. Certainly the numbers suggest that a 65-inning projection is, is reasonable. Um, you know, he would otherwise be a good sleeper because, um, you know, people tend to think too much about how bad the Twins are going to be, and the Twins are pretty bad the last two years, and he still managed 70 saves. So <clears throat> I, think, uh, I think there's an injury risk with most relievers. It's probably a little bit higher than with most uh, starting pitchers just because you – uh, know less about a reliever because they have about a third or a fourth of the sample of a, of a regular starting pitcher um, in any given year. So, you know, I, I just treat relievers in general as fungible. It's, it's part of the reason why I, I don't end up with Chapman and Kimbrell on my teams. Uh, I think Kimbrell could get, you know, just as injured as, as any starting pitcher. And, and since they give us less in general, I'm willing to uh, discount the whole lot. You know, if it comes down to... Uh, Perkins, I think I ended up with Perkins on my mock. Um, so I guess I'm saying in a long-winded way, as usual, um, <laughs> that... Uh, what better I, way uh, is there, really? I, I consider him a risk, but not necessarily a much worse risk than anybody else. Yes, I ended up with him. Uh, Doolittle was my first closer. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Perkins was my second closer, and Reed was my third closer. So take everything Eno says with a grain of salt. Yeah, well, that was minutes before the, the shoulder stuff came out. Yeah. But, um, 
I mean, yeah, you, you could you could say, hey, Doolittle looks super healthy. He hasn't. Nobody said anything about him having an injury, and and boom, there it is. So, <clears throat> I still like Perkins as a um, number two closer, and uh, or if you're kind of extreme and don't even want to take one of the top tier two closers, uh, you know, decent number ones uh, closer in a really cheap bullpen. Yeah, I think, and you've kind of echoed a lot of my sentiments for why I kind of discount relievers, why I'm not generally in the Kimbrel uh, Chapman pool. I was in the Jansen pool in a couple on a couple of teams last year, which felt unusual. I guess I was extremely confident in him and even a little bit in Koji Huahara, and that turned out to be a little misplaced. But in general, I treat the position as more fungible than not, and I was trying to divert a little bit from pre- previous stat, uh, strategies that I'd had where I was not always into that pool, and I thought, well, let me just try this and see how it feels. And Ultimately, I mean, there's no, there is no right solution to any approach to any pitch, uh, to any position. Uh, I mean, ultimately, you still have, you kind of have to, you have to pick and choose your battles. Uh, and I think that relievers in general, I'm a lot more comfortable uh, ignoring it uh, for a little longer than than some other folks are because the saves category is basically what drives most of their value, and yeah. and then otherwise, that's and that is what distinguishes Jansen Kembrell Chapman uh, is a little bit the contributions in ERA and whip, but it's mostly the strikeouts. And that's where like those guys, you know, and it's frustrating because they're the only, they're the only position where that's the only thing you can get from them. And you can get wins from a reliever, but can't get saves from a starter and you can get stolen bases from a slugger, but you can't, you know what I mean? You can't get saves from anybody, but these, these uh, 30 guys at any given time or 35. But um, I think one thing, that, another thing that's nice about Perkins, though, is that, um, you know, when I'm, I look up and down his list of uh, bullpen mates, and I think that his his uh, handcuff is pretty obvious. It's probably Casey Fien, and I don't really see anybody else that has a strikeout rate or velocity. Stephen Pryor has a velocity, but not the health, and a really bad walk rate, and we'll have to see where he even starts or if he's healthy, so... Um, you know, without Stephen Pryor being in there, Casey Fien is an obvious, um, an obvious handcuff. And then that, I think that's relevant in deeper leagues because in a, in sort of an only type league, I like the idea of trying to handcuff a bullpen. Uh, because especially if you buy someone that's not a top tier closer, what you can hopefully do is mitigate your risk by spending, instead of spending $20 on a Greg Holland, um, spend, you know, 12 to 14 on Perkins and a dollar or two on Fien. And, you know, if Holland goes down, you're in the same boat as everybody else. But if Perkins goes down, um, maybe you've got the guy, the other guy on your team. Yeah. And, and in a case like with Fien, I mean, he might even be a reserve pick. Like that would be nobody... so ideal. That yeah. would be so ideal to have Fien in your reserve. Especially in a league like labor where you can only, yeah. I mean, that's for those who don't know the labor rules. I mean, you cannot, you you can only play your reserves uh, if you have if you create an empty spot. You always have to play the players you uh, have uh, bid on or uh, who have a salary. Basically, those players always have to be active uh, unless they are injured uh, or have been demoted or something like that. So that's it's a unique set of rules. It's it's very old school, um, which is kind of what makes it interesting and challenging. So. Uh, but that, yeah, that would be an ideal scenario. But it's possible to make that kind of thing happen uh, in other types of leagues as well. Uh, and just in general, I mean, it's uh, 
Yeah, I think so. We're not, we're not necessarily, it, it's, I think it's a, it's a great way to kind of look at the reliever strategy, reliever strategy in general. There are multiple ways to get to skin this cat. And, uh, I'd be, I think I'd be Please comfortable. Don't skin cats. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll make that clear. That's a metaphor. <laughs> Jeez. That's the last thing I need is on the way out. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know, skin my cat. <laughs> just want to make sure that everybody knows that I'm still, I'm into torturing animals, especially pets. Um, that's going to be taken out of context. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely. Uh, but Perkins is the type of guy. Yeah. I, I think I would, because at this point, like, I mean, he's in that ADP range of like this 20th reliever, 15th to 20th reliever. There's not a great deal of risk at that point. Relatively speaking, I'm happy with a guy who's going to give me 30 to 35 saves, uh, and probably not blow me up. And at that point, if I do lose him for the season, I haven't lost a lot. Like, I might, uh, I probably give myself a better chance to earn more money in the middle rounds by taking a hitter or even a starting pitcher. But that's about the time that it's real easy to take relievers because you're only likely losing, you know, a handful of dollars in potential uh, generated value. Whereas like those guys like Kimbrell and Chapman really have to have, they, they have to continue to do what they've done. And maybe, maybe there's, maybe there's, uh, uh some consistency. Uh, there that, you know, we're not really aware of. Uh, but it's a scary proposition to me because basically they have to continue to do that. Uh, and, and they still come up a little short in terms of the earnings potential of some of the hitters and starting pitchers in their ranges. So, uh, you, you're, you're paying a bit of a discount and, and folks are willing to jump into that bed because <laughs> that's the only places you can get those, that, that specific statistic, which is one of the reasons that saved kind of annoyed me. <laughs> so um without further ado let's get on to uh some other news that is a little less um soliloquy-ish uh starting with Devin Mesoraco this I thought this was interesting because we talked about the bus potential of Devin Mesoraco uh in the context of a couple of things Brian Price sees his catcher as a guy who's going to catch 145 games this year or that's his goal for him and basically sees him as the type of catcher who will do that every year and he just received this contract extension well. I mean, and I don't blame, I mean, I think overall, Mesoraco is probably the type of guy that is going to end up being a decent deal for this team. That, and whatever the contract aside, I mean, offensively, obviously, he was awesome. And defensively, he's, he's definitely made some improvements. Um, but this is the kind of thing that concerns me, uh, because I, and he compared to, his usage kind of the way that the Cardinals do with Yadier Molina. And I think Yadier Molina is a unique beast, whereas Miserac and Miserac may be a unique beast as well. But overall, I think this kind of usage leads to breaking down a catchers early on in their careers. Is that something that you'd be concerned about as well? Or am I just kind of attaching too much to it? Um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, uh, I think that this actually is a meaningful comment from his, from his uh, coach. Yeah, uh, from his manager because he only managed 114 games last year. So even if he doesn't make it to 145, um, a he's not, you know, his knees aren't worn out. I mean, we're talking about a, a 26 year old that caught 114 games last year, and, his, and now his manager wants him to catch more. So I think in general you can say we can go for more plate appearances, not fewer. So Steamer says fewer plate appearances. I think we can say more. Yeah. So, um, I think the fan, the fans are certainly on the right track as far as playing time goes. Yeah. And I think that that is, so I think that it's nice to see that because 
um, even if the fans are a little bit more uh, aggressive with the power um, and, uh, as usual, with the uh, batting average on balls in play, it, it, remember that uh, catchers' uh, batting average on balls in play hovers around 285 as a group. Um, it's not quite league average. So, um, in general, they're kind of a slow uh, fly ball group. So, um, the, you know, the, the fans giving them a 300 Babbitt may not, may not be right, and maybe Steamer's a little bit closer with Babbitt, maybe Steamer's a little bit closer with the rate power uh, numbers for Mezzarocco. Uh, but in terms of like, um, you know, getting it closer to 145 games played, the fans gave him 134 games played. Uh, they give him 25 homers just like last year, and they give him more uh, runs because he'll be in more games uh, and not a lot more RBI. So there's actually is some regression baked in to the fans' projection, and I really like it. Um, and I think that it suggests that um, in some in some ways, Mets Rock will be lesser. Um, it was such a breakout uh, that. It makes sense to do that. But in other ways, it'll be pretty much more of the same. Um, and if you if you give Mezzarocco those numbers, um, you know, his ranking changes a lot. Let me uh, – on-air manipulation uh, once again. <laughs> and I th- I mean, I, going along that, yeah, I think the batting average, and I think that that's somewhat is going to result uh, – it would result in a tad fewer runs in RBIs uh, uh, because if you're, if you're taking some of that out of the – uh, batting average and the batting average on balls in play. And it's interesting that the fans increased the strikeout rate, but uh, also increased substantially that batting average, uh, which I think actually their strikeout rate is more in line because I think part of what aided Mizoraku's breakout was a more aggressive approach. And so I think that maybe that's not, not something that Steamer factored in. But uh, overall, yeah, I think that... Well, these are very significant changes because... Um... If you take Steamer, uh, Mezzarocco is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13th, right behind Will and Rosario, uh, and worth about 5 bucks. Uh, but if you uh, change Mezzarocco's, and this is actually using um, 16 catchers, I believe, uh, as above replacement, mm-hmm. um, which I think you could make the argument that Really, people are only, only going to draft 12 or 13 catchers, um, you know, in the draft. So you may want to move, change that replacement level a little bit. That'll take some value off the top of, say, a Buster Posey in this, in this uh, setup is $28. He's probably a little bit less um, if you only use 13 catchers. But in any case, uh, Mezzarocco would be right around there, around 12th to 13th with Will and Rosario, about 5 bucks in, in these uh, rankings. If you change it to the steamer, projections um uh, to the fans projections uh he becomes a 22 dollar catcher and becomes the second best catcher in baseball phew and re- really i think that more so even a reflection just if you added the playing time uh and actually i didn't even go the whole way i gave him a 252 average because i i was listening to you and i agree uh and i was saying earlier that the babbitt uh, i like the steamer babbitt better so yeah. If you give him Steamer Babbitt in the uh, fans' uh, strikeout rate, I doubt he's going to hit 263. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so I will I get- correct myself. I actually said that being more aggressive was part of his approach, and it was actually the opposite. He was a little more selective. Um, and so I was uh, I was wrong on that. But his contact rate was awful. I think no, no, that- no, no. He was more aggressive. I mean, he walked more. Yeah. So it looks like he was patient. But when I talked to him about this, and he, it was about aggression. Okay. He talked about uh, he, he developed a bigger uh, uh, a bigger uh, kick, like a bigger step, 
um, and he and he was like looking to drive the ball, uh, whereas in the past he was kind of uh, looking to you know hang on in the major leagues, you know, just, like, <laughs> make it. Whereas this year he they gave him the the job and um, they said they believed in him and they they said you know go out there and kick the crap out of that ball. So um, you know I think uh, I think that uh, it does it's really nice actually they managed an above average walk rate while upping his aggression. So. Um, I wonder if we can see it in swing rates or something. Yeah. That's what I, I yeah, swing uh, rates went down, but yeah, uh, but it, I mean, it seems like maybe he just his his pitch identification or something along those lines must have improved. Uh, I mean, and, and some yeah. of those things I think can result just from being a little more relaxed or a little more uh, right. So. And you know, there's there's two kinds of ways to talk about aggression. I mean, you could be talking about Mazzarocco's aggression in terms of his swing. In which case, yes, he was more aggressive because he had a bigger step and he and he you know tried to drive the ball more. Or you could be talking about his aggressiveness in terms of pitch selection, which in case in this case he was a little bit more selective and maybe a little bit more passive. But the aggression in the swing, uh, you know, I think that's something he can hold on to, and it's nice to see he was still selective at the plate. So, um, you know, I really like the fans' projection in general. I might knock a couple points of batting average off, and uh, you know, it's a little it makes me a little bit uncomfortable to put him above Lucroy. But the thing that people forget about with Lucroy is he's not a big power guy. Um, you know, he will steal a couple bags, but he's not a big steal guy. And it's kind of hard to project a, a catcher to have a over 300 batting average. I mean, you know, Buster Posey isn't even projected. He's projected at 299. So um, I think I, I, if you were talking top five, I'm Posey, Lucroy, Mesoraco, Gaddis McCann easy and i think there's actually a tier there uh a hard tier pretty much like if i if i cared about catcher a lot i'd want to get one of those top five because after that it's russell martin who i think is going to be a big regression sal perez i think will get hurt this year he got ran into the ground last year travis darno you're you're banking on breakout yang gomes you know doesn't have the background but you know is a decent pet catcher but i think that's a step down from the top five so i think there's a top five tier there maybe posey's in his own tier but Posey, Lucroy, Gaddis, McCann, Mazzarocco, that, that grouping is, is, is the top of the, of the position for me. Yeah, I think that's that sounds pretty fair to me. And, yeah, Martin, I think Martin will give back a lot of the batting average, but you know he perhaps will gain something in the home run department. It will be remain to be seen how much he's going to have a strange uh, kind of transition. It will be interesting to see what the outcomes about uh, look yeah. like for him. You know, he's got age, age issues, too. I mean, he's, this is true. How old is he? I get this. Thirty-one. And I, you know, catchers don't actually fall off the cliff. People like to say that, but uh, uh, catchers, once they've you know proven themselves to be durable, usually stick around. Actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, here's some news that you. I'm not sure that you could use. Um, this could both hurt or help. Kind of how you might view Michael Bourne, Terry Francona, and, and basically the organization wants Michael Bourne to run a lot more often in 2015. Basically saying. That's why we paid you, along with <laughs> along with uh, we paid you to run, which is obviously uh, statistically speaking not necessarily a good allocation of dollars. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, and, and I don't mean that from a fantasy perspective, although you probably knew you probably got that. Just want to make that clear for the audience as well. <laughs> but uh, that's yeah, and, and you know there is probably some kind of intangible value as far as creating quote-unquote havoc on the base paths. But uh, overall, and, and we know Bourne is 32, 33. I mean, this is, you know, we, we've seen the best of his years as far as a speed yeah. uh, source. 
But and we referenced uh, the stolen base agent curve and how quickly those fall off. So y'all know about that. One interesting thing is there's this thing called uh, the Bill James Speed Score, which adds in triples and doubles and stolen bases and stuff. And I, you know, it's four components, so I think I just listed three of them. I'm not sure what the fourth is. Um, any case, uh, five is average. Um, in 2013, Michael Bourne had a 6.5 uh, speed score, which is decent, not great. Uh, he had 23 steals. Um, last year, he had a 6.4 speed score and had 10 steals. So, you know, you, you can look at the uh, success rate where, you, you know, he got caught six times against 10 stolen bases and say, that doesn't look like a man you'd really need to tell to, to steal more. And you can wonder what it means in his head or what it means on results when, when they tell him to steal more. Uh, but just knowing that he had similar speed as he had when he stole 23, I think it's, it's, you know, it's not too hard. And since 23 was two years ago, I think you can say that he could steal 23 bases this year. Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, I think that he could steal 30 and it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, primarily because I mean, a big, and that's, I mean, I, I don't think of that as a bold thing to say, uh, because players in at this age, if they're, if they've been heavily reliant on their legs, it's certainly within the realm of possibility, and I would put it even at a decent chance uh, because, and, and yeah, you know, this is but this is a question of when do you start to weight uh, the news as you know anything more than noise, uh, and it's uh, because he's also dealt with the seri- the serious hamstring issues in each of the past couple of years. Uh, they've and on multiple occasions, whether it's been anything from a tweak to a tear, and he's torn it multiple times and had the surgery. Uh, but then there's also like he's worked with um, a former Olympic sprinter uh, to improve the, and really kind of, you know, basically attempt to get back some of that ability and kind of can recondition his legs. And those, th- those things kind of work. It's just a question of how well they'll work, if they'll work at all. And we really don't know. The cool thing about Bourne <laughs> is that he's basically like almost the 100th outfielder drafted in mixed leagues like these days, like. I mean, that's a guy that, I mean, I had no, no question, like I had reach around for at the end. Whoa, that sounded, let me put that a different way. I would reach by a round, um, or so, you know, toward the end or just like a couple of rounds, like in a mixed league, 23rd, 24th, 24th, whatever many rounds you have and reach by a few rounds, because, you know, if I can get 25 to 30 stolen bases at the end of my draft and it's not going to cost me anything, like those are the speed sources I want because they're most akin to like relievers and, you know, those the best time to get those guys to me is like just like when Ben Revere was heavily discounted, uh, I think two seasons ago, and it was just because he missed a lot of time in the previous year. Yeah, there's an injury risk, but the cost is so deflated that you're not really risking that much to see if he's going to get back to pretty close to what he was, and he turned out to be a little better than he was. But that's just kind of icing on the cake. I think Bourne is a potential case like that. The reward won't be as quite as nearly as great as something, but like relatively speaking, the price it just it the price for Bourne begs. And if the speed improves, the batting average probably goes up a little bit uh, because that's been a problem for him. I don't think that he's really a candidate to shift or anything like that. Uh, I think it's just a combination of a little bit of health. Um, also, I mean, uh, just a little bit of uh, declining ability. But uh, overall, I think that a little of these things go up. And then, I mean, he looks like an attractive player. And it's just he's he's at, he's begging to be drafted because really no one wants to draft him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I like you know, definitely like when you're thinking about your third reliever, you can think about your, your, your speed only guy. I like that. Uh, <clears throat> I like that, uh, that idea. 
Also, uh, I have a name for you, Carl Crawford. Um, you know, a little bit older, but uh, when he was just about Michael Bourne's age, um, he had a real bad season where he stole five bases. Um, then he came back and stole 15, and then last year he stole 23 in, in half a season. Um, and, you know, the process under which you know, Carl Crawford went underwent to, to get there was <clears throat> sounding sounds a little bit similar to when you're describing for Michael Bourne is, you know, getting his feet, getting his legs right, uh, getting healthy, and then also learning um, strategies for how to stay healthy and how to run better. So these are the kind of things that uh, Michael Bourne will be thinking about. Um, wouldn't even be surprised if he talked to some of the same people that Carl Crawford talked to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bourne's splits are a little bit less uh, dramatic than um, <clears throat> than uh, Carl Crawford's were when it comes to lefties and righties. Um, you know, uh, Carl Crawford uh, against righties has a 114 um, WRC plus and then drops to 84 against lefties. Um, but Michael Bourne actually is about the same. He's about 100 um, versus righties, league average against righties, and then he drops down to 75, 80 against lefties. So there is the chance that he gets platooned, but mm-hmm. I doubt that the Indians have a great uh, solution. They're just a bad um, defensive team in general. And, um, you know, Brantley didn't have great numbers in the corners, so sticking him in center would be iffy. Um, you know, Zach Walters is a former shortstop. I doubt they want to stick him in center. So, you know, there just isn't a real obvious solution other than Bourne full-time, um, whereas Carl Crawford was a corner guy. Um, there was It was easier to platoon guys like that. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that uh, the fan projection looks pretty good for Carl, uh, for <laughs> Carl Crawford, for Michael Bourne. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would I would have him on my bet. I'd, I'd love to have him... Um, and like a U-tail or bench slot where um, maybe I bought two um, speedy guys at the end of my draft and, and hope that one of them uh, stole more bases this year and, and, you know, became a starter for me. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's that's a pretty sound approach. Uh, he's, the, he's the type of guy that as long as the price, I mean, the news may drive out the price a little, but as long as the price is similar, uh, I mean, he's a guy that I'd be targeting at the end. Like, I would definitely, I definitely want him on a lot of my teams based on this because who cares if he doesn't, if it turns out not to be, uh, not to be true. And I think <clears throat> Crawford is an interesting, I mean, he's, he's that same type of guy. I mean, he's dealt with a lot of health issues. Uh, I think you talked to him, uh, and basically he's kind of always, what, uh, was something like he described as, uh, he, he has basically a, a, a body that is not real, like conducive to baseball or something like that. Or it, was, it was something to his, like to his, his gait uh, or stride. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, something yeah. To that. He, he runs too long. Yeah. Like, yes. uh, and strides are too long and that, that leads to hamstring strains. Yeah. And I think, I mean, so obviously he's taken, but, and he, I mean, he's another, he's another player who could be kind of interesting in fantasy leagues simply be, you know, kind of because of that, because I mean, he's, uh, maybe he's kind of gotten on that path and he was actually really good basically in the second half of last year. Uh, but folks, yeah, I mean, have, a Crawford born folks sort of, has, mm. for, but folks have not, not forgotten that for some, like I would want born much more like Crawford is kind of a top two fifty pick, whereas Crawford is kind of off the radar. So, right. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, you, I wouldn't care if I didn't get Carl Crawford, who cares? Right. But if you have a, if you have, so this is, this I think is, I like strategies. I like, I like thinking about, 
contingency plans, and especially in snake drafts where you can be off by a pick by somebody you wanted and you still don't get them. You know, in an auction, you can you can pay for that guy, but, um, you know, you can't buy the guy that got picked ahead of you in a snake draft. So especially in snake drafts, I like to kind of group players. And something that strikes me as a very enticing uh, grouping is something like uh, Dalton Pompey, Steven Souza, um, Carl Crawford, and Michael Bourne. So in that group, you, you've got, you know, some youth, some speed. And if you took one of each group, um, you know, I think you would have a really interesting, you know, uh, fifth outfielder bench slot situation where, you know, let's say Pompey doesn't get the job. Well, you got Bourne, you know. Let's say Salza, you know, can't make contact. You got Crawford. You know what I mean? So you can kind of like yeah, you probably what's weird is even though Bourne or Crawford might be more likely to give you good stats this year from a sort of floor perspective, the veteran guys, um, you'll probably have to pick Pompey or Salza first. But, you know, you could think about picking Pompey or Salza as long as Bourne is on the table, you know, and you pick one of those guys, the young guys first, and then you pick the vanilla old guy uh, to to sort of um, – solidify your youth reach so you know i think you know like a pompey born or a salsa born combination sounds to me like a great fifth outfielder yeah i mean i think to put kind of and judging just from adp to put kind of born's draft positioning i mean there are some other players down there who are kind of hopeful rebound guys like alan craig uh, but and dominic brown uh, juan lagaris i mean he ran more often last year and he's an interesting pick like that's that's kind of fair i would probably want born over most of these guys, but like yeah. Emilio Bonifacio, I mean, he'll probably get his plate appearances. He'll probably get some stolen bases kind of in the same category. But and you Jared, don't know where he's going to play. You don't actually right. know he's going to play because Micah Johnson is there. And, you know, they've got a lot of other other options at second. Yeah. You know, Born makes $12 million a year. At least initially, that's going to still be incentive for the Indians to continue to run him out there. And he yeah. gives them, like you said, he gives them the most upside at center field defense. And if he's healthy – He'll perform close to that way as well. So I think that that's there's a there are a lot of reasons not for the for Cleveland not to remove him from center field. Um, he's virtually guaranteed playing time at least early on. And, it, and, it, and if you don't think that twenty three steals sounds that enticing, I just sorted the steamer projections and uh, twenty three steals. Uh, one two three four five six would be fifteenth. And to be honest, I mean, like I said, I I like I like thirty plus. I I I would put money on thirty plus this year for Bourne because I'd get I'd get good enough odds on it that I think it would pay off. Yeah, maybe it's a good labor target. Like it's pretty cheap this year. But you know, base, you if I if I base a bet on that, if I based it, what I'm saying is, I guess if I based a bet on that based on like what his average draft position is, like I probably get something like fifteen to one odds, and I'm like, yeah, I'll throw five bucks on that because right. I like my chances. I can win seventy five, and yeah, problem, if I didn't, I lose five bucks. The problem in, in fantasy is that we've all now digested this nugget that he's going to run more. Yes, I, that I is true. Even talking to somebody about trading for Bourne, and he's you know trying to talk up Bourne to get more out of me. And he's like, "Would well, you hear he's going to run more?" And I'm like, "Oh man!" So <laughs> it might it might get a little bit out of hand, and people might get into it too much. I that is true. Why, I know, think the good thing about it think is about thirty, but if you're if you're projecting and projecting for twenty and, and pay for twenty, right? That's yeah. That is the safer approach. Yeah. If the news gets out of control and he jumps a hundred picks, it's a totally different story. <laughs> 
Uh, Mike Napoli, this is, and this is another news versus noise. He feels more energized in all-season workouts because he's undergone surgery for sleep apnea. The only reason I even wanted to bring that up is because it's, I mean, I think this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that is, it's, it's virtually impossible to assess a value in terms of uh, its impact on his projection. It really is. This, yeah. this is, this is the kind of health thing though, that does make a significant difference in people's lives in general, just an everyday thing. I mean, I yeah. wrote about that just like a few months ago when I wrote about it and, had someone even comment that they they had had the sur- uh, some, uh, same kind of surgery and and they couldn't believe the differences in their lives like so this 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 how much impact who knows I mean it might not help him hit more homers or hit for a better average but uh, he, it may just help him to stay healthier and uh, you know he's obviously a platoon player basically but I mean his odds of hitting he's like Napoli is another guy whose cost is extremely low and home runs are not the easiest to come by these days if you haven't heard so. 22 to 25 home runs is not incredibly unrealistic. No. And, you know, I, I, uh, I went to school. Um, I, I, I took a class, a couple classes actually from the sleep guru, uh, Dr. Dement, um, who, uh, he's kind of the sleep researcher out there. Um, and he was so big on apnea. He said that apnea leads to uh, bad blood pressure, um, and, uh, heart disease heart problems. Um, he said it leads to car accidents because, uh, it leads to, to people being tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the, even DUI car accidents are, are actually people falling asleep, uh, due to sleep apnea. So, you know, this is a kind of far ranging thing that, um, you know, could mean something. I, I'm not sure what it could mean. I mean, I guess like, you know, it could mean something about, um, just staying on the field. I mean, he's yeah. he's never had 600 play appearances in his whole career. So, um, and he might not any you know, given his platoon splits in most years, he probably doesn't warrant them. <laughs> even even <laughs> except yeah. that he's a righty and he's he has managed 500 a bunch. So that's true. Um, you know, he's not being strictly platooned. Uh, and um, you know, I so I think you know. You know, both Steamer and the fans actually have him projected to the second most played appearances of his career, uh, which is kind of crazy. Um, and that, yeah, but, I mean, I assume that could be a depth chart, a little bit of a depth chart thing. I guess so, but the fan, you know, the fans went with it. That is true. Um, you crazy, know, the strikeout rate has improved last year, and um, you know, Steamer seems to to buy into it to an extent, and uh, you know, I, I you know. I wouldn't push his numbers up too much. Maybe add a couple more here or there. Um, right now, he's one, two, three, four. He's 18th or 19th. Uh, actually, he's worse than that. From the projections or from his? 20th, according to Steamer projections. Okay. Uh, 20th among first basemen, if you count uh, Billy Butler as a as a first baseman. Uh, right, right there with Billy Butler. So... That's he, actually right now. His ADP is thirty sixth amongst amongst first basemen, <laughs> which and there are some players who are eligible at other positions and don't necessarily fall in there. But relative, still, yeah, that's 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 a, a steamer steamer sleeper. Uh, the, the only thing is that um, that's not really twelve team mixed league relevant. Even if you have a corner infield slot, I mean, you'd have to. I guess you could play him at Utah. Well, but in a. Steamer makes him 12-team mixed league relevant if you have a corner infielder, uh, but the ADP doesn't, I guess. Right. And uh, 
I like him for I would buy him for a util slot. I've got him in my um in my twenty team dynasty where we keep almost everybody and I just I, you know, I don't like to sell low, so I was just like, I'll, I'll keep him for another year, see what happens. It does, you know, if you don't sell low, sometimes you end up keeping a guy all the way at the end of his career, <laughs> uh, which might be happening to me right now because on that team I also have Cliff Lee. <laughs> um, so sometimes you do want to sell low, but in dynasties, but in Mike Napoli's case, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I think that's a sound way to go. Um, and. Uh, just some some stuff I want to brush over real quickly because I would like to get some requested to some requested items. Um, but so just kind of we'll quick hit some of these and really most of them don't even really deserve mention. But uh, Eno's favorite for saves in Toronto, Ronald Belisario. He signs with Toronto. <laughs> signs with Toronto, and really he was. I mean, obviously he was he was kind of the guy for a while for the White Sox um, and the ground ball I, rate. I owned him last year for saves. Yeah, yeah, and. Past performance suggests that that was not a bad way to go. I mean, he just he had an awful year in terms of outcomes. Uh, not something you just chalk up the luck, but uh, but there's definitely a hint of a hint of that being a great uh, kind of factor. And I think if you pitch for the White Sox, you're just bound to perform better than or worse than you're supposed to. Like that's just that's just a terrible place to play baseball, right? So. Um, Toronto putting together a winning organization. Maybe he's a guy who gets. I mean, do you think he gets saves this year? So it's definitely possible. They don't really have no, a guy. No, no, no. Cecil and Sanchez are ahead of him comfortably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's he's probably a sixth or seventh inning guy. He gets ground balls, and that's also a home run heavy park. That's basically yeah. that's basically the reason he's there. Gordon Beckham to the White Sox. Back to the White Sox. Uh, I guess if anything, that just complicates the Micah Johnson or other people scenario. But we we can all basically have given up on Beckham as a fantasy asset now. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing, I guess, is that they well maybe it's not really interesting that they also DFA'd Diane Bisiedo. It's like they traded one one bust for another. You know, I actually you know I forgot I need to um... draft Diane Bisiedo. No, I, I forgot to, to look at what that Viciato meant. I mean, they got Melky, Eaton, and Abisale. I guess, you know what that means to me? Emilio is an outfielder. Yeah, well, he's he certainly gives them the flexibility to do that. And um, now that they've opted for the infielder, um, that certainly pushes him to more outfield playing time as a requirement, which actually so, kind of hurts his projection, I would think. I think so, too, yeah. I think, but Eaton gets hurt sometimes. Uh, I think, and then you know, Melky's been hurt. Yeah, I would, that's true. Uh, and then Garcia had the shoulder thing. I mean, not that 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 should be in the rearview mirror. But just reading the tea leaves, I say Emilio is their fourth outfielder. Uh, JB Shuck is their fifth outfielder. They want Gordon Beckham to be their utility infielder. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and uh, you know, then they'll take Micah Johnson. You know, I mean, from the beat writers, Micah Johnson's. We've talked about this. Micah Johnson's the lead. Um, you know, it could be possible that Carlos Sanchez beats out Gordon Beckham because Carlos Sanchez played a little shortstop, mm-hmm. um, and that would keep Emilio from playing short. Um, it's a very interesting situation where Emilio might be the backup outfielder, but also the backup shortstop. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think they they would want Michael Johnson to win and Gordon Beckham to be the the utility infielder. Yeah. Uh, and what teams want sometimes, I mean, that matters as well. The, those are all things to keep in mind. They all yeah, factor in. So, uh, I will be interested to hear if you have any comments on the player that 
Pittsburgh acquired Stephen Tarbley. I thought that that guy played basketball for like the Washington Bullets or the, <laughs> or the Golden State Nuggets or something way back in the day. But apparently he's a pitcher. Um, but I got, I got nothing on him. But I do yeah. have. I mean, he's a, he was starting and had some okay some okay numbers, but it's a ball and he's not really a prospect. So right. Uh, the thing okay. that's it's you know maybe you know maybe they maybe Pittsburgh got something there. But Travis Snyder to Baltimore. Now this is. This is kind of a change in handedness, um, ballpark factors, kind of akin to the type of switch that Brandon Moss is experiencing this offseason. Obviously, the impact you can't project to be nearly as great because Snyder ain't hit for power. I mean, he just he didn't do it in Toronto. But is this? I mean, but he. I mean, he is slowly getting there. Yeah, he, he hit for power in the minors, and he's. He's 26, so he's a lot. I mean, he's 20, turning 27, but he's, you know, even in my in my conservative power peak estimates, 26 uh, was was viable. And you know, going from the seventh worst park for lefty homer uh, to the third best, you know, has got to help him out. Maybe what I was saying today was that maybe he can keep his gains. You know, mm-hmm. maybe there would have been more regression had he stayed in Pittsburgh, but maybe he can keep a 180 ISO about. Um, and uh, if he can do that, I think he can hit 260, um, you know, play uh, two-thirds of the time uh, as a lefty um, and hit 260 with 18 homers. Um, you know, Those are extremely three, valuable numbers in AL only league. Yeah, three or four stolen bases. Uh, basically platoon with um, – uh, well, Steve Pierce is going to end up somewhere. It's a, it's a – you know – these are best case scenarios still because I think Daza is is a more is a, is the starter in left field and even mm-hmm. if he gets platooned, uh, it's David Lowe or Loft or whatever that's going to platoon with him. Um, so that but they're all right. but they're all left-handed hitters. They're all uh, yeah they're all left-handed hitters. Pierce is a righty. Yeah, except for Pierce. So you know if Pierce regresses into a platoon role, then. Uh, Pierce plus Snyder uh, in right field would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, right now our depth charts have Snyder like barely on the team. Um, you know, like fifth at DH or something. But I, I think I'm a little bit more hopeful than that. I think they went and got him for a reason. I think they didn't want to start uh, low in right field, um, which is what our depth charts say. Yeah, that's not a great sounding thing is to start yeah. David Lowe. Yeah, David Lowe is a, is a backup. Uh, to me, he's he's got a little bit of patience, a little bit of, and a little bit of contact, and a little bit of defense, but he's not doesn't have anything else. So, Lowe is the backup, um, and I guess Steve Pierce is the is the first plan, but the backup plan is a Pierce Snyder platoon, which would actually favor Snyder. Um, and Pierce can play DH too. Uh, Delman Young is a righty. Yes, also he's uh, definitely he's a bench. He's got to be a bench bat at this point. Yeah. So actually, I think. For me, if I'm just gonna try and suss this depth chart out for myself, I don't. I'm not saying that necessarily our depth charts need to show this, and that I'm gonna go write somebody and tell them to change it. But my depth chart for the Orioles is Jones in center, Diaz in left. Uh, you know, maybe three quarters of the time, um, low backing him up, um, Snyder and right. Um, you know, maybe more more of a platoon than Diaz uh, with low backing him up there, and. Um, DH being Pearson Young, mm-hmm. and I think um, basically, kind of result of that 
just for like with the purpose of, of looking at Snyder. I mean, he's a he's a low end. I mean, he's a guy you could throw couple of bucks out of an AL only league and that could work out for you. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to cost in draft day. It'd be interesting. There's a lot might is still to be worked out, but, uh, uh, he's, he's not quite a reserve pick. He's not going to last to that probably, but, and, and Baltimore has a little bit, I mean, you know, putting him on par with other teams who have done this, but they've, they have some success with kind of figuring out some things uh, and swing mechanics and things like that, that have turned some guys around. So maybe there's the hope for that, but, yeah, a couple of bucks guy could turn uh, could turn out to be a profitable guy. Otherwise, you just he's not a bad guy to gamble on. Uh, Anthony Renato, Robbie Ross. I, I think to sum up this, I think I saw a Twitter comment of yours, uh, basically that summed up the feeling quite well. Don't really get and uh, or really see much in Renato, but no problem giving up. Uh, player who I know is a reliever for him. <laughs> and uh, that is the case with Robbie Ross. Uh, and I pretty much, I mean, it's, it's hard to disagree. Um, is there any, I mean, is there anything other that, like Renato will probably compete for I mean, probably a depth piece, but he might compete for a rotation spot. Any, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine this guy really giving any kind of fancy value though. Right. Yeah. I don't see it. I mean, I, I think his, his delivery is really complicated. It's, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for him to, to have good walk rates with that thing. Um, I don't know. It looks really tentative um, in terms of putting it together, and it look and it changes within a play appearance sometimes. And then, you know, from a from a trajectory and movement and, and outcome standpoint, his pitches aren't that great. He's got maybe a little bit of a rise ball, a rising fastball with his four seam in ninety two. That's just average velocity. Um, his change is bad movement, uh, but Average results in terms of whiffs in 70 pitches, so I can't really believe it too much. Um, and the curve is decent. It's a, you know, kind of a, uh, it's a, it's a big sort of hammer type curve, 78 miles an hour. It's a good pitch, but it just hasn't gotten any whiffs. Um, and it's kind of a grounder pitch. So, you know, he, he kind of, if things work out for him, it's, figuring out the slider or the change because right now he doesn't really have a third pitch. Um, and so he could still be a reliever, but there's, I think there's a little bit more there to than Ross who kind of has settled into, to relieving, even if he, Robbie Ross doesn't really have, uh, uh, platoon splits the same way. I, I just, um, I think he is who he is at this point a little bit more than Ronaldo. So I think that's what yes. they were doing. Yes. No, I think it makes sense. Uh, Chris Parmalee to Baltimore. That's actually – there's a right-handed platoon bat um, that probably will not make the team, I guess. But, uh, you know, you never know. <laughs> uh, Dane Dillard. I, I, I just think that's, that's probably organizational depth. It's just funny because he doesn't really have a, a skill right? Uh, that, that we can identify. I mean, it's kind of average patience, and he really needs to show the power in order to be a major leaguer. Mm-hmm. Dane De La Rosa, guy who's – Flash velocity at the major league level uh, rates haven't always been uh, terribly exciting, uh, and the ERA has been problematic for his team, except for in 2013. Basically, he had that year, uh, and a lot of folks were interested in him as kind of a sleeper last year uh, for saves. But uh, health has really been the roadblock for him. I mean, not going to put him in the category of like is he going to challenge Zach Britton but do you think that there's a remote possibility that he receives is a guy somebody claims on the waiver wire this year to me it's it's difficult to envision because there are so many things that have happened to him but 
Yeah, it's possible, I guess. Well, he, he's a, he changed his arm slot um, and went more over the top, and that's where all the velocity came from. So he, he, he has some things in common with Danny Farquhar, um, where, you know, big velocity bump from changing his from changing his delivery. Um, so Daniel Rosa, but the problem was that last year he uh, dropped, with those issues, he dropped down from 94 to 91, and at 91 he's not really relevant. Right. Uh, but if you start hearing about 94s in spring, um, you know, there's a bit of magic to, uh, to Zach Britton that may not uh, stick around. And in terms that he's a sinker slider guy and he just happens to have an otherworldly sinker, um, but he throws it a ton. So it's interesting, you know, Dane De La Rosa has a three pitch mix and uh, could. You know, could sneak in there as a strikeouts guy. You know, if he's hitting 94 and he's dealing, and, and Britain has either an injury or, or something, but it's pretty far, pretty far out there in the ether for me. I yeah. think Baltimore would just be happy to have him throw 92, 93, and and give him some bullpen depth. Yeah, I agree. I think like the the probable ceiling for De La Rosa is like supplanting Tommy Hunter uh, as a setup guy. Yeah. Because I, I, I've just never been much of a fan of Tommy Hunter. Uh, he he got the velocity bump with the move of the bullpen, and that's about it. Uh, and uh, Franklin Gutierrez back to Seattle, basically just well wishes and hopes that he can finally get his career back on track after a lot of health issues. Um, but you know he's organizational depth at this point, uh, and was once I mean is has been a talented, probably more athlete than player, once a defensive great, uh, but well. At least according to the metrics and watching him play defense, he was pretty good, I thought. But uh, pretty unlikely to have some <laughs> any fantasy but, impact. But breakable. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, when he gets some requested topics, uh, and start with something, um, I believe this is from Twitter, uh, and uh, he is curious about our opinion on Marcus Simeon. This guy, obviously, who we've talked about occasionally on the podcast before, and he said he's this person has drafted him on a couple of NFBC teams as a potential middle infielder for him. You know, that kind of – that late – I mean, he's an interesting player. Um, we've t- uh, uh, we've talked about a little bit about him. Like, I mean, as long as there's virtually, virtually no cost, because there's, there's just as much downside as there is upside. Um, but there's not – relatively speaking, there's not a – it's not like the risk is saying there's a ton of downside. So, yeah, I think that's I think it's a personally re- reasonable target in such a deep league. As and I'm assuming this is like a 15 team mixed league, you know, where you're rostering anywhere from 30 to 50 players. I mean, I don't think that's a bad player to get uh, for such a league. Uh, you have any specific? I mean, we're talking about a guy who can. He's probably not best suited to play shortstop, right? Uh, defensively, but uh, I don't the, know. I mean, maybe I saw him in in the AFL play shortstop, and it's always a little bit iffy uh, to say anything about those things because um, they uh, the AFL teams have to sort of draft teams based on what their personnel looks like. Not mm-hmm. necessarily, it's complicated. But anyway, because <laughs> he played short there doesn't mean he can. But I, from what I saw, I thought he played it well. Um, and when I talked to Billy Bean um, at the winter meetings, he said. You know, he was he's asking me about our depth charts and where we had him. And when I said he was at short, he nodded and said, yeah. So, um, you know, they internally, I think, have Marcus Simeon at shortstop. You know, Ben Zobrist is, is there. But if you look at their team, they have a, a hole in left and second as well. 
And if you and if you think about Zobris and his age and his defensive profile to date, I think you you as a team would be much more comfortable saying Zobris is our you know left fielder slash second baseman until one of our second base guys and they have a couple second base prospects. If one of those guys comes up and they're ready, uh, then they can push Zobris to left. But um, I doubt that they – what they really would like, I think, is something like Simeon, Wendell, Zobrist, um, where Zobrist is in left, Wendell is playing second in Simeon's. But, um, you know, they're going to start Wendell in the minors, so that means I think Zobrist is their open today second baseman. Um, and um, they muddle along uh, with Gentry and Fold in the outfield until something happens. Uh, yes, if, if Simeon bombs out but the team is still okay – um, then they move over to over. If, if Semyon bottoms out and the team bottoms out, then they keep Semyon in there, uh, is my opinion. You know, give him a full year. What I see from Semyon uh, in terms of growth is he's an extreme non-swinger. So those minor league walk rates are going to come. Um, and I believe in a 10% walk rate next year. Uh, people people have asked me to say, oh, he, he's only hitting in hitting places. He's only hitting in, like, hitters' venues. Well, that's not necessarily true because – you know, we've now have you know 300 plus plate appearances in the major leagues, not all at home, and he's had a you know league average uh, power. Uh, and it, yes, he had better power in those hitters' havens, but you know if you even if you regress that down to league average power, Simeon can show league average power. So now we got league average power above league average patience, maybe a little bit of problem making contact, um, but he has speed, athleticism, um, you know enough to play short. I, I absolutely believe in the steamer production frame. I, I think what's most encouraging, well, one of the things that's most encouraging about him is from year one to year two, and granted, you know, there's not, uh, the samples might uh, kind of affect this, but uh, I think probably not. I mean, he cut the swinging strike rate in half, slash jumped the contact, re- contact rate up considerably up to something close to basically league average. Um, so even though the strikeout rate looks bad, I don't think that it's as bad um, as the plate discipline suggests. I mean, overall, I think that, yeah, he's made significant strides, and now he's going to get a a real opportunity to play. Uh, I would be interested, basically, with the kind of chances this fellow was describing to take a chance on a guy like that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a big sample for the first one, but if you look at the per-pitch numbers like we're talking about, then you're talking about 260 pitches instead of, you know – talking about 71 plate appearances. Mm-hmm. So I like talking about 260 pitches over 71 plate appearances. And if you talk about those 260 pitches versus the thousands or the thousand or so that he saw in 2014, he couldn't have done anything better. I mean, he cut his, his reach rate in half. Um, he swung, you know, 10% less. Um, you know, he, he, he cut his swing strike rate in half. So he really did everything you wanted to see out of him in a second attempt. And it really almost invalidates the first attempt. So you can almost... You know, look past. I mean, that was really bad. A one percent walk rate against a thirty-one percent strikeout rate. That was a really bad uh, beginning to his career. Uh, but um, you know, last year's I think even provides some growth because an eight percent swing strike rate with a twenty-eight percent strikeout rate uh, suggests that something something is going to change there. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like for the better. Yeah. Uh, another <clears throat> another question. This one I think is pretty easy to answer. In fact, a commenter answered it, but I just wanted to touch on it briefly. Uh, to make sure that we, this person knew that we weren't just going to ignore the question uh, last, saying last year that he was high on Brian Dozier and Eno ruined it. So, you know, 
you can apologize for that. Uh, but uh, this year he's kind of thinking of Brock Holt in a similar vein. And, uh, you know, basically I think uh, another user answered the question pretty adequately uh, in the sense that, you know, there's, there's, there's not really, there's not really a lot to like, I think, about Holt. Like, I think Holt had a lot of, little bit of average on balls and play kind of uh, fortune, um, but just in general, he doesn't really offer much in terms of power uh, or even speed, really. Uh, and the path of playing time looks like a problem uh, unless Boston make uh, make some more trades. So anything you'd like to add as far as hold uh, is concerned? Hello? Hello, Eno. Sorry, I had a mute on. Oh. <laughs> Let me just start over. Yeah, I think, you know, Brock Holt is one of those guys that he's a great real-life asset, and he's just not necessarily a good fantasy one, because in real life, the the Red Sox have Dustin Pedroia, Mike Napoli, Hanley Ramirez, guys who are going to miss time this year, and Brock Holt can play every position on the diamond. Yeah. So, you know, they almost don't care – if he's going to be anything like he was last year, they just want him to be passable and passable everywhere. Uh, doesn't really buy you a lot of play appearances, but it buys you a, a 13th slot on a roster on a 25 man roster, uh 13th hitter slot. So um, I think the real battle in the Red Sox depth chart, since I just wrote it up and we're going to be doing these depth chart discussions on our site is uh, Daniel Nava against Alan Craig, because um, that if you just you just add up all the players across the diamond and you just give Brock Holt that that lock because he can play uh, back up short, they may not want to like you know move Hanley back to back up short. Um, and then you know if they do move Hanley, uh, who plays left? You know Brock Holt answers a lot of questions for them by being able to play everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, Nava and Craig don't do that. They can either play first uh, or they can play corner outfield. So. Um, that's why I think uh, they're going to be battling it out in the spring. And um, you can't come up with an answer, I don't think, um, where they're both on the team. And Nava's maybe a little bit ahead because he's a switch hitter and Craig's a righty. But um, Craig has a little bit more upside, at least in terms of power. And if he's healthy, um, you know, he's the guy that's probably more highly regarded. If there is a trade, Craig is probably the guy going. Um, because because he maybe had a good spring and, and somebody wants him, but uh, Nava versus Craig is the big one. Holt to me is just you know backup everywhere. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the depth chart discussions because I think those those have a ton of value uh, because they're just uh, you don't have to agree with the assessment of the writer, and you know a lot of times a lot of folks don't. But I think that those those discussions more than anything drive playing time projections and and the faults in them, or to look at all the aspects of playing time because. I think folks tend to get locked in on, uh, to me, this is kind of the difference uh, makes the difference between slot 250 in a draft and slot 450 in the draft is that like, really those guys could be the same guys. Uh, and it's all about where they are on the depth chart at that time. And oftentimes I like to take the guy who's more in slot 450 because he's really not much different. And I mean, so the playing time discussions, they have a great deal of value in question of, uh, you know, where can you poke holes in the playing time? Uh, survey 
uh, that the writer presents or that you might, you guys will talk about on podcasts. Uh, Cause those are, I think you talked about how those are these uh, topics of conversation for future podcasts as you get into the uh, preseason stuff. So I think that stuff is, is highly valuable and some of the most valuable stuff as far as picking out your sleepers and, and cheap options and stuff like that. Uh, those are definitely the reasons to tune in uh, to me uh, for the preseason. Um, question we got is, what about Mike Fires uh, or Fears? I still forget how to pronounce his name. That is scary this year. We've talked because we talked about this uh, briefly. Just that the, you know, uh, both we are kind of more skeptical of Fears, and he actually looks like I think, uh, according to Steamer, still looks like kind of a sleeper. Um, but basically what was it that made us nervous about him one way or another? I mean, I said like in general, I was probably not interested. I think people would put too much stock in. I mean, basically he's a 29 year old guy who's never been a prospect and, um, he had a, he had a fantastic run, but it was 71 innings last year. And he does the thing where he gets pop-ups, he pitches up in the zone, but it's not a great fastball. And he has a couple of really good secondary pitches. He can be successful for short stints, but I think that there's always this, scare of also turning in a year uh, like 2013 where he had the 70 RA and it's probably something more in the middle to me he's still more he's basically the pitcher in 2012 where he's kind of he's closer to league average but it could be better uh, because he's figured out a better way to pit, to mix the pitches I think it overall just I mean if you're looking for a pitcher to, to deliver something close to a uh, three ERA for the balance of a season based on what he did last year I think you're probably overestimating his abilities, but yeah, I, I'm definitely willing to, I, I'm willing to be wrong about fires or fears. Yeah. The, the um, so his, his pop-up rate is 4.8, 4.9 and league average is 3.5. Um, so he definitely has, uh, that going for him. And he definitely has a rise ball. His, his four seamer has two inches more, uh, vertical movement, sort of more rise, uh, than most four seamers. So, um, Yes, he has he has that going for him. It looks like he's changed position on the rubber. Um, his horizontal release point um, changed a full inch and a half, maybe foot. Yeah, yeah, he must have gone. He went from one extreme uh, side of the rubber to the other. And what's interesting is that um, in his good 2012 uh, work, um, he was also where he was last year. Um, so. I'd like to explore that a little bit more, maybe write a piece about it. But um, Fires definitely uh, started out uh, 2013 on one side of the rubber and then moved a full foot, foot and a half almost, uh, to the other side of the rubber to get back to where he was in 2012. Um, so because I, I say that because his vertical movement, his vertical release point uh, stayed steady. Mm. So it wasn't that he changed his mechanics fully. It was... Must have been spot on the rubber. So I'll look into that. That could have, that could be important um, based on uh, you know the fact that one of the things he does really well is that he has um, a good change and curve, and maybe and the curve in particular, maybe um, people saw it a lot, you know, better or worse based for based on where he was. Um, let me let me look at see if the whiff percentage on one of those changed with the uh, place on the mound. Yeah, okay, so it looks like actually uh, that his change um, was really hurt by the new new spot on the uh, on the rubber, but he, he found that back again last year. That gives him, from a from an Arsenal standpoint, Mike Fires does have uh, what you need in terms of the rise ball plus a good curve and a good change. 
the only thing that makes me nervous is the combination of his 88 mile an hour velocity um, and his home park. Mm-hmm. So when steamer projections projects them into um, a home run in a quarter uh, per uh, per nine innings, I don't really argue with that, and that's why he's going to have a three six three seven type ERA. The only thing that I can say that mitigates that is the steamer doesn't necessarily uh, project pop ups. So um, you know pop ups are pretty much out. So uh, you could maybe get you know take that BABIP down. But what steamer does do is look at previous BABIPs and then project a new BABIP based on previous BABIP. So, um, you know, Steamer has them projected into 284 BABIP. That does include uh, pop-ups, you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I think I think the fans' BABIP is a little too harsh. Yeah. Uh, and the Steamer BABIP looks about right to me, where I still... But the but fans, it's... you know, don't want to give him more than a homer per nine, and I'm not necessarily sure that's true, because he had homer issues in the minors. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an 88-mile fastball. He's not... That's That's been what people have said. He's going to be too homer. Uh, two homer happy people are going to take that ball out. So uh, maybe the spot on the rubber helps him spot the 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 um, the, uh, the the fastball better. Um, but uh, in any case, um, he he does have some risk associated with that velocity in the homers. Yeah. I'd rather have him as like a sort of a three four that might have to form that spot. Right. Yeah. That I think that's a good way to view him. Uh, another keeper question. We and we got a couple of these. Uh, I think we can get to pretty quickly. I get to keep three of these four. It's a two hundred dollar auction. Uh, keeper price in parentheses. Cueto at eight dollars. Matt Harvey, Mookie Betts, and Chris Dickerson, uh, each at a dollar. I mean, I, I'm a cheapskate, so I probably just keep the last three. <laughs> yeah. But Cueto is obviously an excellent deal too. Uh, I think it's hard to argue with any of Dickerson is a definite. Yeah, um, as the lock. And if I didn't want, if I, yeah, Dickerson is the lock. Um, if I wasn't so averse to keeping two pitchers, I'd say Cueto and Harvey because Betts, I think, represents the least profit potential there. The, the one thing I would say is that if you can't keep these uh, past this year, if there's anything about that, um, and it's just for this year like that, then I would take Cueto over Harvey mm-hmm. um, because you don't know how many innings Harvey will give just this year. Yeah, that is a good point. If you can't keep Harvey beyond this year, it's it, he is less a little less enticing. But uh, I don't uh, I don't know that you can really really go wrong there. And I don't, I'm not even a huge Dickerson proponent, but at a buck, I mean, you're profiting. I don't I don't see how you're not. I'm keeping Mookie no matter what too. So okay, yeah, and that's probably very different. I, I'm not, and I I like Mookie. Um, he his value probably jumps. I may be quote unquote. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. He is kind of cute. <laughs> uh, we've been. I'm going to skip over a little bit of this guy's question because we actually touched on this quite a bit. But uh, one of the one of our Twitter fans uh, asked us, uh, uh, and Jason and I talked about some of his stuff on Sunday. But he followed up with uh, basically in 15 team league five by five. Basically wants to know, and it's a one catcher league. What positions are thinnest at the 13th to 15 guys, 15th guys, and and deepest? And, and this. Really, it's it's kind of the same thing for most leagues. But uh, I mean, to me, uh, in a one catcher league, shortstop is thinnest when you get to that. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that you'll agree, but um, I mean, two catcher league, it's total, it's it's definitely the opposite. But I think you're talking thinnest uh, around that time. Like nothing excites me in, at the 13th and 15th shortstop. I mean, I don't say nothing, but relatively speaking, I mean, you're talking about some some poop production down there. Whereas catcher. 
uh, I still think that there's there's some salvageable value. And the rest of the positions are kind of vanilla. Um, they're, they're probably basically, they align with things that we've kind of assumed for the past few years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 15th, around the 15th, um, shortstop is Marcus Simeon, uh, Everett Cabrera, uh, John Sakura, Danny Santana. Um, and Danny Santana is like possibly the biggest regression candidate in baseball this year. Yes. Um, you know, Segura, I, I would pick Segura out of that group because Cabrera doesn't even have a job yet. And I'm worried, a little bit worried about Simeon's batting average um, just in sort of a fantasy standpoint. Um, you know, Segura or Simeon would be my pick. But that's, you know, you're hoping for like a 240 average and, you know, you know, 15 homers and 10 stolen bases from Simeon or, a, you know, a 260 average and 10, you know, eight homers and 20 stolen bases in Segura. I mean, that's those are nasty numbers. Third base seems pretty deep. Um, you know, going down to 9, 12, 15. Now we're talking Chase Headley, Carlos Santana, Chris Bryant, Aramis Marias, Brett Lowry, uh, Matt Carpenter. Those guys are going to hit above 260, 270. They're all going to hit more than 10 homers. Um, they're going to have some stone bases. I think that's that's pretty nice. That might even be nicer than first uh, because first you get a lot of old people. Um, and uh, 9, 12. So first base at uh, 15th is uh, Brandon Belt, Chris Carter, Adam LaRoche. Uh, Adam LaRoche, we're not sure he's going to be uh, he's going to be able to be a good DH. Uh, Billy Butler, Mike Napoli. Okay. So first is probably a little bit deeper than third, but I like I like third and, and first. Shortstop is pretty bad. Um, I think I mean the question here is, uh, I guess for your for your outfielders, I mean, are you talking? Now I'm I'm just going to look at ADP. That's I look at it because I I say I don't put much value in it. But I just say, hey, where can I get these guys uh, relative to the crowd? But anyway, I mean, are you talking three outfielders, four outfielders, or five outfielders? Uh, and it's not still not easy to tell uh, if you if you're in a one catcher league because they're all the formats can all be different. But uh, if just, ov- just overall just, outfield has the most value, like what you, uh, what is your, the way you put it? Um, the fifth outfielder in most mixed leagues is kind of like still better than, uh, money producer than at, at any other position at the tail end of it. I think so. I mean, uh, just to finish off, here's fifteenth. The fifteenth best second baseman is like Chase Utley. Yeah, uh, Martin Prado, Howie Kendrick. Yeah, sure. Jed Jerko. I'll take those over the shortstops. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we no have to doubts. just assume five outfielders just for depth purposes. Yeah, because um, if it's three, then that's unquestionably easily the deepest position, and you could ignore it forever. <laughs> <laughs> Almost forever. Um, I'm having a hard time counting this much, but... Um, let me see, two, three, four. In terms of the ADP, you get into guys like Michael Morris, Oswaldo Orsia, Austin Jackson, Curtis Granderson, Nick Castellanos. I mean, uh, Coco Crisp, who's Steamer likes quite a bit and generally does. Crisp is a guy who we know is always hurt. Um, uh, Coco Crisp, Corey Hunter, those are all, there's some old guys as well. Yeah, I uh, think there's some evidence of, uh, of iffiness down there at the bottom. Um, Michael Bourne. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of iffiness. AJ there's no Block, question about that. AJ- AJ Pollock. I mean, I'd say I'd like to. If position wasn't an issue, uh, I'd rather be picking from the group of uh, Michael Bourne, AJ Pollock, 
uh, Will Myers, uh, Steven Souza, Dexter Fowler. I'd rather be group, group, you know, choosing from that group than uh, Semyon, Lowry, uh, Segura. I'd rather be choosing my outfielders at the end. I mean, outfielders yeah. and first baseman and maybe a third baseman. I'd rather be choosing those guys at the end because yeah. there are a lot of players that people don't want down there that I think could be just as good. Yeah, there's a, there is something that goes on, um, you know, near the – there are tiers for sure. And, I, you know, I think in Fangraphs Plus we're going to have some tiers because, um, you know, there's Troy at the top. There's Tulo at the top. I'm not sure that I – want to spend as much on Hanley as is being spent. And then there's Jose Reyes and Ian Desmond. That That's the top four. And then between Andrews, Alexei Ramirez, uh, Castro, Rollins, Bogarts, um, those guys, I kind of want somebody out of those so that I'm not picking out of the end, but I'll take the last one. So I think I'll end up with, you know, Alexei Ramirez on some teams. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to look at Alexander it. Alexander Bogarts. A uh, couple – okay, here's a question, uh, another keeper question. Currently deciding if a $16 right is worth keeping in a 6x6 NL-only league. We don't know what the f- the six categories are, uh, but uh, basically that Al- uh, as ours Mundy, Alcantara, Jock Peterson, uh, Joaquin Benoit, <clears throat> the other options are Alcantara at a buck, Peterson at two bucks, and Benoit at 14. Um Basically, I think uh, another commenter answered this question pretty adequately, um, so very appreciative. But basically, to sum up the answer, I think that uh, Wright and Benoit are kind of approaching quote-unquote value. And uh, even though the other options won't fill in the blanks, like you're not you're potentially saving a good bit. Like I think Peterson is the keeper there. Um, and so, but some of this is like how much are you keeping them just for uh, this year or are you keeping them beyond? Because Peters is unquestionably the guy if that's, if you're keeping them beyond. Um, I think you got to just go for it. I mean, I, I don't love, uh, I don't love prospects, but Wright and Benoit are really where you might pay, what you might pay for them in the draft. I feel like. Yeah. Or, you know, at most you're saving a few bucks and like, I'd, you know, I might still target those guys in your draft and just say, yeah, I'm willing to get them back and spend a little more. Um, but if they went for 16 bucks or however you ended up with them at 16 bucks before, there's no reason to think that you can't get six, uh, pay 16 or less for right this year, uh, based, uh, based on previous seasons uh, or based I, on this past season. I like that Alcantara has a major league track record and has shown something, but it, it's hard to know where he's going to play. Yeah. It, I mean, he's, he has a ceiling, uh, perhaps of kind of like, you know, a young Ben Zobris because that's kind of how they're talking about him. But there's also, there's, a, there's a considerable floor and you know, there's a lot of flexibility. But overall, you're not talking, production wise, you're not talking about nearly the kind of ceiling that you're talking about with Peterson. So. Yeah. And just, Zobris, Zobris has some patience, you know, it's kind of hard to keep running, you know, a guy out there who walks five times against 30 strikeouts. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't, can improve, but. He he does need to improve a little more in plate discipline before he you know before he forces himself in the lineup. He's more of a backup at this point, yeah. Or a backup plan in case Javier Baez doesn't work out. Okay, uh, here's a, a question, pseudo philosophical question, uh, as this person puts it: a league where you're allowed to keep uh, hang on to your expiring keepers for one more year at the cost of burning another keeper slot. So this that's an interesting uh, scenario. I think that makes uh, there, there's a clear cost benefit 
uh, analysis you can kind of take advantage of here. Um, I'm not sure exactly how, I mean, I have some ideas of how you'd calculate the cost benefit ratio or uh, the cost benefit analysis of, <clears throat> of a, an additional keeper spot lost. Uh, but he, like, for instance, he is going to keep Stanton, who is in an expiring deal, and lose an extra keeper spot. Keeper spot. That's an understandable one. Uh, Altuve, Braun, Hanram, Max Scherzer, also in expiring deals. Not sure if they're worth the extra slots. Now, <clears throat> uh, and then there are Kyle Seager, Sterling Marte, Kenley Jansen, it looks like Jake Arrieta, Garrett Cole, uh, and David Ortiz. No, those guys are not worth that extra spot. Um at least to me, triple a triple slash league. He says so. That's batting average, OBP, and slugging. This is this is a somewhat complex league, and uh, he's picking twelve I mean, of twelve. You, you can also just look at the players that he needs to spend an extra slot for, and just say, are these elite players? Because right. if they're elite, then maybe you know the draft can bring you something that that pairs with them well. Um, you're kind of looking for somebody who's going to clear. Uh, the rest of the position by a lot. So Brown, Braun and Hanram, I think they're gone because yes, uh, there's no reason. Yes, Hanley Ramirez, maybe you can play him at shorts for this one year, um, but you know, I I think you can get them back at relative to the same cost as what they've been in previous years. Like if you want these guys back, you can probably get them sort of. He's not. If it was too low, maybe, but he's not even the best. So, right, right. Um, you know, Braun, same deal. Not a top. Uh, not the top three outfielder. Stanton is probably uh, the top outfielder. Or, or no, sorry, sorry. In a world where Mike Trout doesn't, <laughs> uh, but I, I have Stanton probably in the top five overall. So I, I, I like it for Stanton. Braun and Hanram, no. Scherzer, I don't think so. Even though I think we, uh, I went on a radio uh, appearance with the Pitchfork guys, and we said, you know. Could there be a guy to dethrone uh, Kershaw? And I said Scherzer because, you know, he's going to the National League and it's a good year. But, you know, you have Cole right there. Um, I like Garrett Cole. And, I, and my my out of left field uh, prediction in that in that same radio show was Garrett Cole for the Cy Young. So, um, you know, I don't think he's worth it. So now you're right. Altuve becomes the big the, the question mark. Now, um, I like Seager. He's probably talking Kyle Seager, right? And I like Starling Marte. And in a oh yeah, I'm sorry. I just yeah, I, I'm sorry. I I misread. Uh, he's he doesn't have to sacrifice a spot for any of those Seager, Marte, Jansen, Arietta, Cole, Ortiz. Those guys are on his team. Those right. those guys are just on his team. Those but he'd have big, to bump one to keep anyone else. Right, right. So so um, you know, if there was a choice between Jose Altuve and nobody, or Kyle Seager and Starling Marte, uh, I'm taking Kyle Seager and Starling Marte. I mean, it's a triple slash line too. So, Altuve's lack of power hurts him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And the fact, I mean, he's probably not going to get like 50, 45 or fifty steals or whatever. I mean, a, a safer target is thirty to thirty-five, and even then, he might. Uh, I mean, there is certainly the chance that he he regresses significantly. Yeah, I mean, even in our slowing base agent curve, he's a decent age. I mean, he's not going to lose a lot, but you know, I think he he will lose. You know, five to ten. That could make him forty-six. He's projected into thirty-five. The, fan, the fans say forty-five. Um, I'll give him. I'll give him forty. But um, do I give him a three-sixty Babbitt? I don't think so. 
And then without the 360 Babbitt, when he had a 316 Babbitt the year before, he had a 316 OBP. But he's there's and this has been sub 400 slugging. This is uh, I mean there was a there was a definite process change. I mean that's documented. I think Jeff Sullivan wrote about it on multiple or multiple guys on the Fangraphs side have written about it. I mean there's so I think that there I think he has a reasonable chance to keep a lot of the Babbitt. 360, I don't know about, but maybe 340 or 350. Well, man, he, he hit more infield flies last year than he ever had before. He hit more fly balls, uh, so maybe some of the power gains can be soon can be real. Uh, and he is a plus Babbitt guy for his career, but I feel much more uh, comfortable with him at a 320 Babbitt, um, which you know makes him a good second baseman. But you know, a 750 OPS from a second baseman. Let's look at the projections here. No, I don't know if they're going to give us that. Yes, they are. <laughs> okay, second base projected into OPS. Uh, Cano's better. Rendon's better. Walker's better. Betts is better. Carpenter is better. Zobris is better. Pedroia is better by projected OPS. And he's yeah. talking about he's a triple slash line guy. Right. Here's here's well here's my take on it. This is what I was thinking. He's like, yes, you do have the coal and all that stuff. And I, basically, what I'm saying is also like I think. I think Altuve has a better shot maybe than you do to keep the gains, but the combination of those things, like the fact that he's kind of a minus in some categories and uh, or a possible minus in some categories and the depth of second base, which you talked about, especially as you get, I mean, a lot of guys down there, I'd be plenty fine with having. Um, and I'm not real confident that Jake Arrieta is going to continue to like, I would consider keeping, like, I think Scherzer can be that guy. And like is a is a potential is it is a pretty likely uh, I don't want to say likely but a somewhat probable thirty dollar pitcher uh, in a mixed league and I I would I'd be willing to boot Arietta for Scherzer and and have like a Scherzer Cole combo I I would love that and I'm not one to keep pitchers but I I, I think I I think that the boost for Scherzer going to the Nationals and could be massive to the point where I'm probably overestimating it but considering that I I. I don't think much of uh, enough of Altuve. Like he'd be out of the discussion, especially based on your categories. Um, the other three would be out, but I would definitely consider keeping Scherzer and booting Arietta. That'd be the way I would look at it. Oh, if if it was like a, a straight decision between uh, Scherzer in a blank spot and Arietta and Cole. No, no, no. Like, uh, um, is that like I think. I think he would have to boot, like he has to boot one of the players in order to keep, uh, yeah. sure, sure, like to keep one of the other players, right? Right. Like in addition to. Right. So basically, Scherzer in a blank spot versus Arietta and Cole. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, so like, is it? Is, well, is it? I guess what well, I'm asking is. Extension, I think you can make the argument because Arietta is probably coming, uh, going to regress, and Cole is not Scherzer. Even, you know, uh, I mean, he'd have to really hit his 75, 80, 90th percentile projection to, to get close. So um, I think that's a better argument than Otuve, yes. Okay. Oh, oh yes. Okay. I, I was still, uh, yeah, I was, I was still, yeah, I was still a little bit misinterpreting your question, but now, now I'm definitely on the same point. Yeah, I think, I think that is, yeah, I think that is a, a more realistic or uh, a likelier, uh, but, and I guess that's the thing. It's like Arietta doesn't excite me. Uh, I just, I think, yeah, I think that there is a very, very likely chance that he, I mean, he gets injured or uh, regresses uh, or he may start off really well and hit and hit the skids, whatever. I think that there's a, 
there are a number of things about him that I think make him a bus candidate. So, yeah. uh, whereas Cole and, but I do like Cole a lot. So, uh, it's understandable to keep the two of them anyway. Um, and kind of the final, this is, uh, I was kind of wanting to get this question, something we could probably answer pretty succinctly, but, uh, you know, somebody basically asked us if we could do a nerdy spreadsheet thing. And I think, you know, we can, you might be able to spend an entire podcast on this, but I think we kind of answer this pretty succinctly to say, like, if you, <clears throat> how would you set replacement levels uh, to account for bench players and how to pick the uh, right hitting and pitching splits? I'm not sure exactly what he means there, except for maybe uh, he's kind of assuming deployments in daily lineups or something like that. Um, but replacement uh, levels. I think um, the, the hit pitch that he's talking about, um, allocation of auction money. Right. Okay. Oh, right, right, right. Of course, yeah. This came well, up a little bit in my in my chat today, and and, and Sanders has an has an interesting argument about it. He says that um, you should value when you're coming up with a projection values. You should do it based on the lineup slots in your league. So if you have nine pitchers and thirteen hitters that start for your team, then you should then um, by valuations you should have a sixty forty split because mm-hmm. that's the type that's the rosters you have to fill right right so that's that's what each of those roster slots is worth right so in terms of the overall pool of money that's going to come out of the game at the end in terms of production it's going to be a 60 40 split because you've got nine hitter nine pitchers and 13 hitters you know but it, it and you, but then once, everything i've seen is i mean oftentimes the results usually still skew more I, more often than not, and sometimes they even get beyond it, like that kind of two-thirds, one-third, because the people have this kind of... Well, no, I think in terms of I think in terms of results, it's going to be, by definition, 60-40, because you've got these slots, and there's no, no way to get around it. You have to, you get production out of slots, and these are the slots. But I think, you know, I'm saying... The reason uh, that people I, talk about 70-30 and, and, uh, and changing those valuations is because of risk with pitcher projections. Right. Um, no, yeah, and I definitely understand that. What I'm saying, like, I've seen... and. This is, I guess this is a sample of just a lot of leagues that I've seen. Either I've done the calculations myself or read, read articles that other guys have written about them. Is like after the fact of the draft, they'll, they'll, you know, do those totals. And every team is a little different, obviously, but uh, they still end up with basically a two thirds split in the money because most people do uh, artificially inflate the cost of offense. And that doesn't, I mean, it's different. Right. Like sometimes it's sixty four thirty six, but sometimes I've seen you know seventy seventy one and thirty twenty nine, something like that. Like well, and that's that's and that's my experience is that's what the results end up being even after the draft, not just beforehand. And I understand what you're saying. Like no, you no, ha- no. You st- what you're talking about is what people have spent. Right. Oh, I thought that's what you were saying. No, Are you no, saying- no. I'm talking about at the end of the year. Oh, the, in terms of player earnings for those yes, spots. We, oh, if you tally up what. What, yes, what yes. the players okay. are worth, it's going to be 60-40 because you had 60% hitters and 40% pitchers. Right. Yes, that, yeah. Okay, that so, I understand. So Sanders is saying calculate your uh, your values based on 60-40 because that's what they're going to be worth at the end of the year. And then allocate your resources 70-30 if you like based on your assessment of the risk of pitchers and how many pitchers you can get later. Yeah. What's In my going to happen then is that you're not going to buy any aces. Right. Because you're gonna you're gonna value them sixty forty, so you're gonna give Kershaw a top five uh, price, right? But since you have only given yourself seventy thirty, 
uh, to, you're only giving yourself 30% of your own money to, to spend on pitchers. You're either going to buy Kershaw and a bunch of scrubs, or you're probably end up going to buy trying to find values in the middle. The way the way my spreadsheet is set up, like I have, um, kind of in the back end of it, I, I have it set to calculate. It, basically, it it adds the the hitting slots and the pitcher slots and determines the percentage based on that, and then that's how the money is divided as well. So the money is determined by that, and then I also have a way that, and then I can, then you can have a, a subjective manipulation if uh, if you choose to do that, where I can change it to you know, bump it by 5% or just make it a flat 67, th- uh, 33 or something like that. And I think, I mean, that's beneficial because it lets you, you can, you kind of instantaneously rock the values back and forth to see how they're reflected and give you an idea of the inflation one way or another based on your allocation. But um, I do generally agree. I think like to kind of go with the default and yeah, really the hitting prices in general, and I don't, I don't know if that's still the case, but in general, pitcher, you know, pitchers get hurt a little more often, right? And they're also they're a little less consistent in terms of performances from year to year. So I think that the the artificial adjustment for offense is justified. It's justified, but there is, I think, probably a difference to doing it in the values or doing it after you make your values. Right. That's yeah. Um, that's understandable. But I think uh, it maybe, might be... maybe that maybe practically there is no difference because, you know, if you only have, you know, what's let's see here. I'm going to do this real quick. I should be able to do this in my head, but I can't. So I'm <laughs> so if you only have seventy eight dollars out of your two hundred sixty, um, that's thirty percent. If you only have seventy eight dollars, and and I have uh, Sanders uh, rankings right here, um, so I can tell you. That for and he has them sixty forty, so he has Kershaw thirty seven dollars. If you have seventy eight dollars for your entire pitching staff, are you going to spend thirty seven dollars on Clayton Kershaw? Yes, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, if you do, then you're. I mean, you're you, you then you then the, your second pitcher is, uh, you know, Matt Cain. Oh, <laughs> I mean. I I maybe prefer to bake it in because if you so you do sixty forty and you're looking at this and you're trying to say okay what would I actually spend on Clayton Kershaw if I only have seventy eight dollars for pitching you don't actually know what you would actually spend on it you know what mm-hmm. I mean yeah yes yeah. yes no yeah I I definitely understand yeah what you're because, saying there well, at this or I mean. I don't know. The other thing is, there are going to be some people out there with sixty forty splits that are going to just keep bidding, and you're going to be like, "Why can't I get a pitcher?" <laughs> I think. I mean, I think that's to me that's a, and that's just another part of makes what makes navigating the draft fun and all that. I mean, it's there is no there's no definite best way. I think that's why it's beneficial to look at both, like to do kind of the default split and then do the inflated split and see and get an idea just of what your projections drive in each scenario. And maybe that maybe that kind of makes a range for you. And um, you know, ultimately, you're just you, you want to find still you. I mean, I still make it about the players, and I look for the targets, the uh, guys I think they're going to give me the most bang for the buck. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody does that to some degree, but a lot of people just like to pay. They like to pay for the players that they believe are going to be that, and and don't necessarily look at the risk involved uh, quite the way I do. So, uh, but like in mine, yeah. But 
uh, Kershaw comes out as a thirty-five dollar player. Um, <clears throat> Is that and, a thirty seventy split? Uh, that's sixty-seven thirty-three, and I think tr- maybe it's tr- uh, Cabrera is a thirty-dollar player. I mean, I think like my my spreadsheet still makes I think Kershaw the most most uh, expensive player, and really that's probably the way it should be. <laughs> but in, uh, in his uh, in, in this one I have is uh, it goes Trout, Cabrera, Stanton, Kershaw. Okay. And I know, I mean, Zach's methods and mine are, I, I think I use a method that's pretty similar to Podhorser's. And, uh, other than like, I'm not sure what kind of split he emphasizes. Uh, but he, when we've taken ours both, there's, it's kind of a derivative from the Masters Ball method that Todd Zola put out, which is, I mean, they're all, uh, you know, in the end, the values are all not terribly off, but there's certainly some subtle differences. But, uh, anyway, that I think that, um, It, there's no uh, there's no exact way to know. I mean, I think that that's part of kind of what uh, I'm trying to say about it. There's no exact. Yeah, I mean, you uh, have the choice of looking at what happens at the end of the year and saying sixty forty, or looking at what happens going into the draft, which is more seventy thirty. Yeah, and that's really the choice in, in hand. Yeah, I mean, it, probably since you're going into the draft, maybe it makes sense to to put it seventy thirty. Because <laughs> you're because you're going to be going into the draft, and you're going to be looking at a lot of people that are that are also looking at seventy thirty. So, and basically, uh, as far as setting replacement levels to account for bench players, I have seen no perfect way to do that because bench players, you know, in, in theory, you're projecting them not to play that much for your team. Uh, and there's no, I don't think there's any ideal way to do that or even close. I have yet to see a way that you can discount them properly. I mean, you don't want to pay nearly as much for bench players. You want to pay for starters. Um. I know that I believe, like in Yahoo, I think you have to pay for bench players, and in some other setups, like and a lot of like a lot of industry leagues, it's 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 a round robin or a, whatever a snake draft at the end. But uh, I know that in some public kind of setups, that you have to pay for the bench players, and there's no. But I would I wouldn't pay much for them uh, because, well, you, and it depends. It depends also. Yeah, it depends on the league. If it's AL or NL only, I want to pay more for them. In in this one. Um... In sort of the Zach Sanders method, there's like um, there's about 30 players that are worth less than a dollar, you know, in in terms of uh, you know worth like 16 cents, 30 cents, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, players like um, uh, in this case Mike Mustakis, uh, Mark Teixeira, Nick Castellanos, uh, AJ Pollock, uh, Scooter Jeanette, Jed Lowry. Um, so those guys. You actually should bump them all to a dollar because everybody costs a dollar. Uh, but in any case, what they, they, they represent your bench. Uh, and I think that you really just think about it when you're when you're going through each lineup. It's like, is anyone really going to want to put a catcher on their bench or in their utility slot? No. So <laughs> set the catcher replacement at one, you know, maybe however many teams you have in your league plus one. Uh, because maybe there's a catcher who also plays first that somebody drafted, you know, to back up their other catcher or something. Uh, Victor Martinez, maybe he's available at catcher or something, you know. So uh, he's not. But uh, <laughs> uh, when you look at uh, first base, you say, do I have a corner infield slot? Yes. Do I have a util slot? Yes. Okay, well then 20, uh, you know, if, if it's a 15-team league, 
then 20 for the corner infielder slot, maybe another five for the. So I'm going to, uh, the 25th first baseman is probably a replacement level. You know? Yeah. yeah. And you, you kind of think, well, second baseman, probably not going to be a lot, but if I have an MI slot, there's probably 18 to 20 uh, second baseman. And, you know, you could do this by also looking through your teams, uh, the end of the year rosters, and just sort of counting out how many uh, of each type were owned. This is true. That's yeah. That's kind of the, and it's kind of aligns a little bit with the SGP method. Yeah, loosely speaking. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's in general. My motto is if it's a, if it's a mixed league, especially if it's a shallow mixed league, I ain't paying jack for a bench player. If I could bid a dollar or if I could bid zero, I would. And if it's a deeper mixed league. Maybe I'll throw a buck or a couple of bucks to certain guys. It depends on who's out there. And then they only leagues and then only leagues. I'll spend something on the bench because replacement level is crap on the waiver wire. But uh, it's there's there's no other way. There's no real uh, keen way, I guess. There's there's probably a specific way. To, there's probably a, a very specific way to calculate that. But uh, I've never been interested in trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's it seems like a lot of work for little payoff because you're talking about bench players. But anyway, and when you're talking about bench players too, uh, you're talking about end game, and even then, like the end game is unpredictable. So yeah. Anyway, I think that's that should probably do it for this episode of the Sleeper in the Bust because uh, I've allowed us to run our mouths for longer than uh, usual, and uh, perhaps just me hanging on to a little something uh, more so than. Uh, that I'm reluctant, uh, that I'm willing to, it was willing to admit, uh, but enjoyed, uh, enjoyed, uh, this possibility. Uh, thank you very much to Eno for giving me the chance and, and, uh, hopefully it's not goodbye forever. Um, but, uh, did want to thank everybody for, for listening and being, uh, wonderful listeners and readers and, uh, we'll continue to wish nothing but great things for photographs and fan graphs overall, uh, to, you know, especially, and uh, you guys will be in great hands with Paul Spore and other people who continue to carry on the tradition over there at Rotographs. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, bigger and better things they continue to put up. And uh, thanks uh, thanks for, for, for hanging out with us uh, as long as you did. And uh, hopefully you'll come back. If not, uh, best of luck um, in what you choose to do. Well, I appreciate that very much. And, uh, you know, if and when I do come back, it'll definitely be better that time around because, uh, uh, I'll, uh for, for an array of reasons that I, uh, won't really get into. But, uh, nevertheless, I, I, I would be very mad and looking forward to it. Mad in a crazy sense. Uh, so this is episode number 188. Uh, Eno, thank you again, as always, for joining us and me specifically. And, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yes, uh, episode number 188. Uh, I'm your host, Nicholas Minix, signing off. Uh, the Sleeper and the Bust. Sleeper and the Bust.